You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with me, Julia Hobsbawm of Names Not Numbers and Editorial Intelligence in association with the Financial Times. Hello, everybody. Uh, we'll try to live up to our billing. I just want to insert a small advertisement before we start, which is that listening to Dennis's remarks reminded me of the fact that I've got a novel out. It's a thriller. <laughs> it's a thriller, and the hero is a New York psychiatrist. And he treats a banker who's just lost his job and appears to be suicidally depressed. But it turns out to be more complicated than that. Um, for our panel, uh, our, what we're going to be discussing today is connectedness, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Julia's tried very hard to get a representative panel, uh, but unfortunately she failed. We're all good. Um, connectedness could, of course, mean and does mean almost anything to different people. I think it could mean the Arab Spring, it could mean Facebook, social networks, it could mean pipes and mobile phones, and by a happy coincidence for this Vodafone session, we've got a representative from Vodafone. Um, it could mean our families. I'm going to ask uh, the members of the panel not to make presentations, but maybe each of them at different points in the conversation to give us one brief thought about what it means to them. I'm going to start very briefly with my thought, which is a family-connected one. Uh, I've been living with my family in uh, Brooklyn, in New York, for the past seven years, just come back to this country, and uh, my 11-year-old daughter, uh, who was four when we left, uh, kept up her friendship with our neighbor, her best friend, who was our, our neighbor in East London. And a couple of years ago, they started communicating very regularly, and uh, several times a week. And the way in which they did that was not by phoning each other, not by emailing each other, not by going on Facebook, uh, not by doing WeChat, but by writing each other letters. And... Uh, I'd come down in the morning, and there'd either be a letter from Lady Sadotti, Ashfield Street, Whitechapel, waiting for Rachel, or there'd be a letter from Rachel to Lady waiting to be, to be uh, posted. And it made me think, that here were these two nine-year-old girls who were single-handedly defying everything that would be said about the younger generation at conferences such as this. So it was rather sweet. But they were, in their own way, uh, definitely connected. So I'm going to ask for a couple more thoughts. Um, I'm going to start maybe with Andrea and Bill before we go to a broader discussion about their ideas. I'll start with Andrea. Sure. Um, I think thinking about connectedness, uh, the thing that brought me into the entertainment business was um, the fact that I'm fascinated with how people escape and how they disconnect and how they get away from everything and relax and what our job is in the entertainment business is to help them do that. And so, but ironically, the, the best television programs and the best films um, are the ones that actually connect us. And they're the ones that um, tap into the things that are resonant in people and the things that are common in people, whether it's emotionally or what provokes them, no matter where they've grown up, no matter what nationality they are, they are no matter what age they are. So it's, um, our job is to tap into those experiences and those emotions. Um, and like I said, what provokes people 
around the world, and the best entertainment, the best film and television does that and tells universal stories, um, as well as in the end, ultimately connecting everyone to each other. Well, I think. Um I mean, the, the trouble with connectedness is that it, it's so integral to life, really. I mean, connectedness is why we speak to each other, why we read books to prove that we're not alone. Um, but I suppose I think about it, and I, I, I've been has spent a lot of my life looking in, at Japan, and now I've been another as a strange turn in my life started looking at Italy, and in both cases. Um, what connectedness has made me think about is whether connectedness is a trap, in other words, a cage, or whether it's an opportunity, an, an opening. And in both cases, you can see groups within those societies doing both of those things, connecting and suddenly becoming conformist and not willing to open your mind to other things and sometimes excluding other people. In fact, very closed networks deviant Masonic networks in Italy, mafia clans, Silvio Berlusconi, um, connected to everyone who's under the age of 17, anyway, who's female. Um, but as a sort of trap, or the openness of connectedness that is about having your mind opened and will it being willing to receive new ideas and prove you're not alone in the sense of prove that um, actually the world is much more intelligent than you are and therefore you better learn from it. And do you think that that technology actually makes us more connected or that we have a certain amount of time and emotional energy and we just distribute it in different ways? I guess I think the second. Um, but clearly we can, um, we can use our connectedness in new ways thanks to, thanks to technology. Um, and we can mobilize um, in new ways thanks to technology, which is your Arab Spring point, and also um, in this Italian, little Italian obsession I've got, um, Beppe Grillo, um, the, the man who in, in, um, in the sense of the 140 characters all journalists call um, comedian Beppe Grillo, but actually, or hairy comedian Beppe Grillo, actually we call him, um, but actually he's connectedness Beppe Grillo, because he's rise from 0% to 25% in five years in Italian politics is all to do with internet connectedness and, um, and mobilizing through new technology, which do, then do is dangerous. Do you perhaps. think it le the fact that we can be equally connected through technology these days with somebody in a completely different place or completely different culture, does that actually increase our understanding and tolerance or do we just group in the same ways that we used to? We seem to group in normal, in, in pretty consistent ways, it seems to me. Uh, maybe we form different tribes. But um, if you look at Europe right now, um, it seems to me that despite all our connectedness, despite um, uh, the Financial Times and um, this magazine I used to work for as well, I suppose, um, people are starting to dislike each other more and becoming more, more un less connected in a way and sort of blaming each other more for their problems. More loudly. Yes, more loudly, maybe that's it. Maybe thanks to the Financial Times. <laughs> Noreena, what do you think about that? Um, well, some research I've been uh, doing to, to answer your question about are we... That's nice of you. <laughs> are, are, are we reaching out to different people because we now have the technology that enables us to do this? Or are we, in fact, just reinforcing our existing um, networks and it turns out that actually we pretty much are reaching out to people like us 
Um, if you look at social media usage, um, it's really very striking. I mean, people are predominantly linking with people of the same colour, um, people of the same background, people of the same nationality. Uh, one in five people on Facebook have uh, um, stopped taking any posts from people who have different political views to their own. And so there is this danger that we have this illusion that we are kind of more networked and more informed, but actually we're just living in this mirrored echo chamber where we're just reinforcing our own pre-existing beliefs and ideas which is actually exacerbated by this medium because um, what happens is the more we seek out and find corroborating views the more extreme actually our own views becomes whether it's rap or Rachmaninoff or radicalism or um, racist views when we start participating actively online and interacting with people with the same views as ours, our views become more extreme, less nuanced. So that's, that's a kind of danger. Um, I mean, there's also presumably the, not just that you amplify your own views, but the, on Twitter, for example, there's always, it always seems to be an incipient danger of a lynch mob in that, in that some, something upsets one person and then it upsets somebody who they link to and then it can quite easily get turned into a sort of a, a rather short-lived but rather angry sort of little movement. Yeah, angry and it's a medium that, you know, it's Chinese whispers kind of gone into overdrive. It's, um, and I'm not a Luddite by any means. I mean, I absolutely acknowledge your point about the power to mobilize um, the transparency that comes through our internet connectivity. Martha Payne's um, two pan school dinners, which you know she blogs and reach, and it reaches David Cameron and Jamie Oliver. So, um, so it, so it, so it is. Um, there is this paradox essentially, um, which I'm interested in, as you were. Does anybody saying, just on the sort of social networking point? Does anybody have a more optimistic view of it? People stick to their own social groups and colour and so on. One of the things I find interesting about Facebook is that it, it's so international. And of my friends on Facebook, I think I have a very large proportion come from India and the subcontinent. And their interest and, and engagement with that, I think, is, is fascinating. And uh, I see that as a great addition in my life in that way. Yeah, surely na national boundaries mass mm. matter less than they did, do they not? Coming back to your question about connectedness, I, I think fundamentally, of course, it's about people um, and the technology is simply an enabler. I think what it does help in both a good way and a bad way is to track down the people you want to meet who normal circulation in life wouldn't get you to meet. Um, it also helps you maintain old links. And I want to just tell a little story. On Thursday afternoon, I was at Heathrow Airport. I was flying to Cape Town and I bumped into an old friend who was flying to Boston. Um, the old friend was Tim Berners-Lee. And I started talking to him, well, he started talking to me about his plans to celebrate next year the 25th anniversary of the World Wide Web. And I was thinking coming here, you know, this thing which is changing the world in a very radical way around us, um, hasn't yet celebrated its 25th birthday. Most of us grew up and it didn't exist. And yet now it's become the ubiquitous vehicle for social media, for connectivity, for business, uh, all sorts of things running across it. Um, 
And he said, he went on to say that his big worry for, until two, three years ago, was how the whole of the world was going to get connected. How you would manage to get this web to include everyone. He said he's no longer worried about that. It's perfectly clear how it's going to happen. Maybe not in one or two places like here in Aubrey, um, but <laughs> roughly 90% of the world's population is now on a mobile phone network. Sorry to those of you who live in Aubrey. Um, and, and that's spreading. That's more than are connected by uh, water systems, power systems, uh, infrastructures that have been there a, a lot longer. And, and that creates a huge opportunity for us. The, uh, the digital divide that's existed between the developed world and the developing world is radically broken down by this. And you're starting to see how the internet itself, having been a predominantly Euro-American thing, is starting to get its Chinese manifestation, its Indian manifestation. Very little in India so far, because internet penetration is only about 1% there at the moment. Look at the opportunity there. It's African manifestation, very localized content, relevant to uh, the people of an area, and giving them new opportunities and new ways to develop themselves, but all using the same technology and the same basic linkages that we're using. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about it, but I think I completely agree with you that it can be used to reinforce prejudice. It can also be used, as by Bethegrillo, to, to break down established structures very, very effectively. And do you think that, um, like you say, it's extremely young as a medium and it's got a certain tradition of, uh, and, and a certain culture of not inviting uh, or being hostile to regulation or being hostile to guidance. Um, do you think that the flaws of it could be could be corrected by um, different incentives or, or different ways in which it's controlled, or is it just inherent that it's a rather <coughs> anarchic, spontaneous medium? I, I think I've never thought that there is a digital world and a real world that are two separate things. I think the laws, the social customs, all those kinds of things that govern the physical world that we live in govern our behavior in the digital world as well. You can achieve anonymity more easily in the digital world, at least for the moment, um, and that does allow some people to maybe abuse. Uh, but I think that'll, I think we'll learn uh, the ways of, of interacting with each other, the ways of introducing ourselves to each other, of creating relationships, all of that in the digital world. It, because it's very new, we're not doing it very well at the moment, but I'm, I'm not bothered by that because I think we're learning and it's evolving. And, and Bill, you, men I mean, you mentioned Beppe Grillo. Do you think that... Um, the way in which individuals can connect with each other and maybe form movements and maybe encourage, encourage their own views, does that, affect, does that change the way politics is conducted? I think it will, actually, yes. I think it will because, uh, I mean, partly, and it changes, obviously it's already changing the way we as journalists have to conduct our lives. You know, life is much more two-way. And politics is therefore becoming, I think, thanks to this, going to become rather two-way. One of the paradoxes about Beppe Grillo is that he will not give any interviews except to foreign journalists and, and, and won't talk to anyone. But nevertheless, um, uh, he, he has set up a, a movement which is, I think is going to have its own momentum. And I think I mean, a question about it uh, is whether or not it will, in the end, be good or bad in the same way as a referendum on entry on membership of Europe could be a good or bad or, or capital punishment, but by which I mean... You're opening up a Pandora's box of, uh, of direct 
participation, the sort of um, right. Britain's Got Talent view of politics, and the X Factor view, view of politics. You vote, vote your way in. Will we, the question is whether or not we will um, accept limits to that. I mean, we generally, I, you know, I'm sure you and I would impose limits on it in a dictatorial, elite, yes. da- top down way, but, um, but will the public accept it's limits a bit to hard it? To, it's rather hard to argue against democracy, isn't it? It's, ra- it's rather hard to argue against freedom. It's one of those things that you just tend to find yourself on the losing side of the argument. And we've, all, and we've assumed for a long time that democracy meant representative democracy. Mm whoever was allowed to vote or whatever, but, but maybe we are moving to a more Athenian democracy. Well, I think it's going to be, have to be more um, responsive, which means then you have the question about short-term, long-term. Um, I, I, I can't see any way around that. that uh, so there's the, going to be referendums on the ballot for everything. Or at least movements that make you very, very hard to, to ignore them. Right. Um, you know, we, we spent some time worrying about single-issue politics, if you like. You know, is that, but um, that's kind of multiplied hugely by, uh, by uh, the capability for it. It's multiplied hugely by the connectivity of the Internet. Um, yeah, I think Avaaz now has... Um, Avaaz, the organisation yes. which um, people online um, sign petitions, um, now has 20 million members. Um, so, um, and then I think you're right, there is this danger then of, um, you know, it all becomes about single issues and the most popular issues and nobody's going to care about soil erosion in Africa, for example. Um, everyone's going to, you know, but people will mobilise around fox hunting. Um, so, yes, I think that is, but it's also, as you say, Matthew, it's a kind of real world, it's not symptomatic of the virtual world, it's, it's a real world problem as well, it's just the medium is allowing it to be exaggerated. But um, I think another kind of point about connectivity, um, which relates to, the, to, to some of the presentations earlier that's been on my mind, is um, you know, how, how techno- technology's been evolving so quickly, and yet we have not been evolving fast enough to be able to cope. And so... Um, you know, emails, texts, tweets, when you look at what happens to us physiologically when we're in this state of perma-connection, um, you know, heart beating fast, um, sweating, breath getting shallower. Uh, there's a study that shows that um, every time you check an email, it takes you 24 minutes to get back to the same level of concentration you were at before. I mean. How do we cope with this and how do we reconfigure our environments so that we can have time off to think, to innovate, to be creative? Do you think there's, you know, we're just a hula hoop generation that, you know, this thing comes along and then we're obsessed with it for a bit and it changes. Well, I don't know if hula hoops change the entire way people live their lives, but we spend a long time on it. It's a craze. Uh, there's a huge ideological fervor about it that it's the best thing ever and then we all get sick of it. I think customs and habits can become institutionalized quickly. And if you just look at within organizations how the kind of ceasing of emails, culture, you know, is now so endemic. And so to absolutely reverse these would almost take, I think, a workplace revolution. I mean, a real concerted 
effort to say, enough, I have to impose boundaries, we have to think about this. Yeah. It'll never go away, but I, but I think that we'll learn how to deal with it yes. better, that in 10 years' time we will have, we will have adopted different ways of, of sort of breathing through our days and dealing with emails, and, and we're the children of it, and we don't really understand what we have. And I think that I deal with it in a very different way than three years ago, and you learn to, and it's just like Ed was saying, you know, he takes the time to read a long piece of journalism. Right. And, you know, I'm a book publisher, and obviously I have to read all the time, and I have to read very long things. And you have to teach called yourself books. how to do it. <laughs> called books. No, they're not called books. They're called manuscripts, ah. because you never get to read a book and it's finished. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and that's the true connectedness is, as a publisher is, is what you're doing is you're connecting people to something that you get at it through a very solitary occupation, which is sitting and reading. And frankly, you don't care whether it's on printed paper or on your iPad or on your telephone, but it's reading at length is, is the thing. And people aren't going to stop doing that. They're going to find different ways of doing it. They're not going to stop beating books. No. I think that's right. I mean, the adjustment is already there, in, as uh, shown by the boss of Yahoo insisting that um, people come to work um, yes. instead of working remotely and CCing all their emails to a, to a million of their closest colleagues. Well, I suppose um, you, could, you could imagine that email is already a rather antique technology. Yeah. I mean, it was, the, it was the very early days of the Internet. That's what people did with it. They yes. emailed each other. Uh, <laughs> but at the moment, we're still slightly stuck with that technology. I think that we are learning how to set boundaries. I, for one, my New Year's resolution was to move my BlackBerry and my iPhone away from my bedroom this year. So it's been very successful. I don't do it in the middle of the night anymore. Um, but also, to your point, are things changing? I think it remains to be seen. Is it a flash in the pan or is it a fad? I was asking someone at Twitter the other day whether what's going on at Facebook and, and whether people are moving away from Facebook, and what he said was that um, regular users of it are starting to wane. They're seeing a fading of it. But what ha what's happening is they're supplanting those people with other age groups right now. So it's hard to tell what's happening. Um, it's hard to tell whether that's something that'll decline over time or not, people, whether, whether people will get tired of it. Mm. And just, let's just turn the topic slightly to, to what you were originally talking about, which is the, that ugly word, content. The, the notion that you can produce a work of art or a work of television or um, something that compels people and it, that it communicates to them and it links them in their sort of common understanding. You know, they're all watching the same series, they're all experiencing the same drama, they might talk about that. In some senses, that's an unfashionable way of viewing what the media should be about these days, isn't it? I mean, you know, shouldn't it be a more interactive medium than that. You're sort of saying, well, connectedness is I produce something and it pulls people together passively. Is that, isn't that uh, what yeah. you're Well, look, I think that people want to be passively entertained. I don't think that's ever going to go away. People will always want to sit in front of a screen and do nothing and, and be told a story. And so, yes, interactivity is increasing, but I don't think that that's at the um, peril of passive entertainment. And I don't think passive entertainment is a... It's not passive. Because if you're watching something really good or reading something really good, you're using your imagination. It's active. It's just that it's solitary. It's, it's your relationship with the, the film or the book. But I don't think it's passive. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, okay, fine. I agree with you then. Uh, what I'm saying is he's asking whether it's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing to want to have a shared experience, to, whether you've read a book and you want to go talk about it. 
with someone, or you've all watched the Academy Awards and you want to talk about the dresses the next day, or um, you know you watched an episode of Downton Abbey or Homeland and you thought it was spectacular and you want to talk about it with your friends. I think, I think that's what people are seeking actually is is um, water cooler entertainment. Yes. I mean, I had an, an interesting experience the other day, which was I was watching a, a new television series, and I watched the first episode, and I thought, oh, yeah. And then the next, day, the next night, I thought, oh, I'll just watch the second episode. And then I thought, hold on a second, it's not on until next week. I'm going to have to wait another six days to watch this uh, thing, because I've just been watching House of Cards in, in sequence and so forth. And actually... I just wonder, I don't know if this is directly relevant to the topic of connectedness, but I just wondered if from the point of view of a television executive where you think, well, actually, this time-shifting behavior and, and the, now the ability of people to sort of gorge on, a single, on enormous lengths of the same product for a short period and talk about it and then move on to the next thing would just change the way we think about these, this medium. I think... Um it's interesting. There was an art, There have been a few articles written about House of Cards and how a viewer um, does talk about it with their friends because you consume at different rates. And, and you know, some of you, some people will gorge on it in one sitting, and others will watch it over the next course of three months. And how do you talk to your friends about it? Um, but I do think it's inevitable um, that that's the direction that entertainment is going. Is we have to give consumers the content when and how they want it. And so. Um, I think you're going to see less of having to wait once a week to see something. Or what will happen is you'll wait till the whole series is aired out and then you'll watch them all together if that's what you want. But of course if people watch things at different speeds, I mean the sort of classic thing about, you know, when I was at school and probably still when kids were at school, you watch the thing once a week and then you go and talk about it. And there's a Twitter equivalent of that is it airs, everybody talks about it, and, and they, they, they tweet along in real time with their reactions to the event, like sporting events. But if drama is actually just going to be watched in different time sequences by different people, doesn't that break that sense of connectedness around this unifying event up? Um, well, I think that's why you're seeing a huge increase in the popularity of live events right now. So because they're the thing that forces people forces to be people on the same around the television at one time. Right. right. So, um, but yes, and I think that um, the time shifting of regular episodic drama and, and comedy is only going to increase over time, and so. You know, we're all dealing with it now. We all watch Homeland on a different... All of us watch it at a, at a different pace right now. And so right. you just have to figure out how to discuss it. Right, and a lot of people, I, I guess, would have the experience I have in, of thinking, actually, I'm, I'm not moving forward at all. I'm just going backwards because all that happens is somebody said, oh, you should watch Breaking Bad. And then mm -hmm. I have to watch eight episodes of the first series. To, <laughs> it's like I'm going backwards into the past. I'm getting further and further away from contemporary entertainment. The paradox of this, of this is, the, is the winner takes all outcome of it, though. Right. That, um, that Hilary Mantel wins all the prizes. That, um, <laughs> that, um, that a few series and a few books, actually, I mean, in traditional, are getting bigger yes. in terms of their star power. Because they don't um, go away. They don't go away, but also they're spread more, even, wi there's even a, more widely. It's a contagious thing, which I yeah. think I'm fascinated in, in terms of book publishing, that in the last few years, well, actually since Harry Potter, which we published, was the first time you got phenomenon publishing and books where millions of people would have to read and buy it on the first day. And um, we, we've had lots of discussions about it. And there's, you know, Dan Brown, the Twilight series, and, of course, Fifty Shades this year, which is completely fascinating. No one can make head or tail of why that has happened and what it is. 
But one of the things that, that came up in a conversation I had with Boyd Tonkin at The Independent, is he said, I thought was really interesting, he said there is something that links all these books. There is some common factor that these books that go way beyond bestsellerdom into some other territory. And he said, it's the Gothic. They are linked by the Gothic. And I think that's absolutely right. They are all about the Gothic imagination. And, uh, and so we thought, well, why, what is it? What, what is it? And I, I completely agree with him. Why are people reading the Gothic at the moment? Why do they need it? And um, what he said was that people in history have read the Gothic when their lives are particularly circumscribed and mundane. And people need to break out of that. And so something is happening at the moment which I, I think bears a lot of investigation and thought. And I don't think anybody really is, is doing that. Well, I think so between those and what Andrew was saying earlier about uh, live events, the same is true. It's not just live entertainment events. It's big things happening. There's a desire to be there where it's happening, whether it's St. Peter's Square or Terrier Square. Uh, you, you need to know what's going on. What interests me is who decides the what that's happening is significant as opposed to all the stuff that's happening that isn't significant uh, in, 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 in that sense. And, and what creates, it's the same thing about you know, the, the Gothic, what creates this buzz around something when it's not around something else or the same thing. But I don't think that's a new phenomenon. I think you've seen that way back. I can remember when I was a child watching the television documentaries about starving children in Ethiopia and, and feeling powerfully moved by it and then being told by someone, well, that's fantastic and it'll raise an awful lot of money to help deal with the starving children in Ethiopia. But what about the starving children in the next door state who the television cameras haven't yet met? So the, the sort of editorial brain that's, that's capable of shaping uh, interest, capable of shaping a story, I think is made much more powerful and the thesis that social networking is taking all of that away I think is wrong. Biggest demonstration of that for me was the Egyptian revolution, where, which everyone describes as a social media revolution. But if you actually chart what happened and look at what Al Jazeera was doing behind it, Al Jazeera was brilliantly crafting a story which was then multiplied uh, and disseminated incredibly effectively through social media. The editorial brain that, that wrote that story and created the the buzz, the excitement, the, the reason to be there was a good old-fashioned media editorial well, that brain. Me another subject, which I was watching a discussion on multiple uh, of massive online education called MOOCs, uh, and and people were talking about the potential of this uh, of people being connected on the internet, watching courses. You didn't, you could study uh, particle physics if you were in a village in Pakistan. How that changed the entire nature of education and. Um, Larry Summers, who was taking part in this discussion, said something which I thought was very interesting. He said, this is all true, but think how people like to be physically together. And he said, if you, had, if you were asked to guess between two experiences which somebody would pay for, would it be uh, watching a, a sporting event in the comfort of your own home, able to eat anything you wanted, not cramped, with your family, uh, able to pause it when you wanted on an extraordinarily big television screen, or would you think it was going to a stadium, sitting in an uncomfortable seat, in a cold place, having somebody shouting in your ear, and of course it's the second experience. There is some, the physical connection is very, very important. Although, I mean, is a medium like Twitter changing that? Because um, if you look at, if you track tweets around 
event shows. Um, I did an experiment where I looked at um, whether we could predict the winner of the X factor by monitoring tweets. So I um, put together a team of computer scientists and social scientists to track it. And, you know, the volume of tweets, clearly people, 92% of um, under 24s are now watching television and using their mobile and texting. So there is this kind of in connectivity, there is this interaction even when you're not there anymore, which technology, which mobile phones, which Twitter is allowing us to do in a way that we never could have before. You can have the stadium experience at home, and, yeah. that's, and that's really different. Isn't that lovely? I think, I think that, that makes people feel connected, but it's not the same thing. It's a chemical thing you get when you're in a crowd. I think there's something... That, that is literally sort of chemically transforming. And it's like when you see people give extraordinary speeches. I remember being in a square in Italy years ago when a politician was standing and there was a demonstration. He made a speech. I couldn't understand a single word he said, and yet I burst into tears. Because, and then you realize how Hitler did it. It's absolutely amazing because it is literally physical. And, you know, you are carried away by somebody's voice and what is going through a crowd. And I think people want both. I don't think, yeah. you know. Well, we're going to uh, experiment with connectedness, actually, by asking the audience to make a contribution or ask some questions. Hi, this, uh, my name is Deborah Leary. Actually, it's an experience I had on the way here about connectedness, and I think it'd be really good if it said connectedness, the road to a, a, a twitch. Because as I was actually travelling in the car, I got my sat-nav, I got my iPad, I got my mobile phone, I've got four Twitter accounts, I've got a Facebook account, I've got the papers. And this is all going on in the car, and all the technology at the same time was starting to lose battery life. And the, the twitch I was developing was becoming extreme. It's a wonder we're still actually married on the way here because I was getting very stressed. We're not. Um, so that, that is the badness of connectedness. And that, in, in, in a sense, it would be great to be brave enough to turn it all off. Yes. And I think okay. that's what we've got to start and do. Okay. Any other observation? Derek? A short observation from a politician. <laughs> Derek White, I wonder actually, John, whether you were in New York with, with the hurricane, because I just wanted to talk about that, because it's got a good and a bad effect. The good was that the ambulance drivers, the police, the mayor's office tracked tweets, and where people said help, they went. But those people were white and had access. The language was in English, but actually the major language is probably Spanish. And so people who were Spanish, American, weren't given blankets and didn't get access. So I'm, I'm kind of, the, the data thing that's kind of coming around at the moment, this huge data surge and in interest, I'm wondering who's handling this kind of, you know, objectivity or analysis of what's right. coming? I don't know the answer to that. All I know is I follow the Twitter feed, the, the parody Twitter feed of the Spanish Bloomberg announcements, which is very funny in case anybody... But, I, but seriously, though, actually, language... It always strikes me on technology that there are certain things that change enormously and then some things don't. One of them is time zones don't change. Extraordinarily, they really affect things. The Brits were very, very smart. They kept the time zone when they lost the rest of the empire. Um, and the other is language. And those things are real barriers. Excessively connected. There are bad and ugly bits. The bad bit is being connected with really dismaying disinformation, which you may, at a rational level, 
uh, dismissed, but you don't really. Once you've heard those things, they're with you forever. And hugely, you know, anonymous, dismaying disinformation spread by who knows where, but probably in Washington. Um, also, um, the, the slimy trails of crazed bile. You are connected with very, very slimy bits of other people's heads, which are full of crazed bile. And those are difficult to get out of your heads. I'm, I'm putting them... They sound like the same thing. They're not. The one is systematic, um, but anonymous and nasty. And the other is very unsystematic. But you're yeah. connected with... Again, very difficult to get that stuff out of your head. You would think, I'd rather not have connected with that. Yes. There is a sort of adverse selection about self-expression, isn't there? It, it tends to people who express themselves more often tend to be the people who've got time and the obsession, the energy and the obsession to do it. It's green ink forever. <laughs> I was going to say, the green ink used to be dealt with by the man with the paper bag in the newspaper office. Somebody would be sent down to talk to him, but, but now he runs the world. Uh, thank you. Nigel Cameron. I run a little think tank in Washington on the future of technology. Um, question, well, by means of response to the panel, what running through, running through my head, uh, with all due respect, was the thing that I call the fallacy of the new normal. That is to say, we've had these extraordinary changes. I mean, Zuckerberg, for example, I think is, 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 is a good example of this. But um, it isn't just older people like some of us. But we've had all these extraordinary changes taking place. The point is, at an exponential speed, they're taking place around us. And so we have to project three, five, seven years ahead, which is what in our think tank we try to do, and ask the question, where are we going to be then before we can have the conversation about what we're going to do now? Now, I, I didn't hear much of that from those on the panel. I'd be very interested to hear how people think actually will be the state in three, five, seven years' time, because that has to condition the way our imaginations frame the questions today if we're to be connected then. Okay. Does anybody have a thought on that? Well, you've defeated them. I don't know if it has anything to do with connectedness, but um, with respect to the entertainment business and how we consume um, content, I alluded to it earlier that you will be able to get it. We must be able to deliver to the consumer how and when they want it, on, on whatever platform they want it on, meaning on their mobile phone, on their iPad, whatever, at any point in time. The other thing I would say is, Tap, tap into what you were saying earlier, um, Bill, is that mediocrity will not survive. So as a result of that transparency, um, you will only have great content, either big hit content, or I think um, very, um, what is it, uh, uh, hyper-focused um, content. Actually, I wanted to ask you a question about the book industry in that regard, and, and this question of time rationing. It, it struck me... Last year, I read quite early on in the sort of process, I read Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn, and I thought, this is a really, really good book. And I went around telling people, you should read this book and whatever. But I'd done that before with other books that were quite good. Uh, but that one was a breakout hit and is still at the top of the charts in the UK. Enough people were told to read it, enough people read it and told other people to read it. But it strikes me that in the book industry, that it's not just that there isn't enough room for mediocrity. There's not enough room for actually rather good stuff. Maybe there's less room than there used to be because you're, even books are going towards a hit-driven... Yes, they are. I mean, I think that uh, 
the mid-list, as it's rather depressingly called, is suffering at the moment, and that's partly because of the collapse of bookshops, and bookshops are right. in a terrible, terrible state. They're but, very threatened. Because I mean, I know people recommend me books, and I mm. sort of, and, and I think, well, that sounds great, but I just know I'm not going to have time to read that. No, I don't. You and know, maybe I in the old days I would have had, because I'm spending all my time being connected with people in much shorter-term bursts. <laughs> the figures of book sales have not gone down. People are still reading books, but what is slightly depressing is this the big hit thing is that everybody's reading the same book what is um, exciting is that people still discover things on their own and you can market the ass off something and people won't necessarily buy it right. and then there are books that sell because somebody gives it to somebody else to somebody else to somebody else I mean there's a book that we published a few years ago that the British public did not want the press didn't want the bookshops didn't want everybody thought it was a boring whiny American self-help book because nobody had read it, and it's called Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert. It's actually one of the funniest, smartest books I've right. ever read. It became a bestseller in our territories, in India, sure. Ireland, South Africa, and then it became four years later, now this is the point, yeah. four years later it became a massive bestseller on its own, and that was the power of what a book can do without any marketing. And that's what happened with Harry Potter. Yes, it but did it on its but, own. Sorry. That's not changed, has it? Isn't that what books are always like? It, but but you have now you have publishers saying we've got to generate, we've got to sort of somehow through social media, and this is true of broadcasters so, and everybody. Social media is just a marketing tool, and right, it's a exactly. bloody good one, and it's not as expensive as putting ads right, on the but you're tube. You're just saying nothing's changed. And, no, no, but it's it is. It's a new kind of marketing. And Simon Singh said to me recently that mathematically, it's the single Twitter is the single most important marketing tool there is. And it was then that I I. I took notice and somebody who's speaking here today, Damien Barr, has his first book coming out in two months. And if you want to see how you can kick up a storm through Twitter, you just watch what he's been doing through it. And that, but that's a new form of marketing. You know, everything will change with marketing and it's just, it's, it's the new way. It's not changing what we're publishing. But is that really going to change it? I mean, I just want to, everybody now is told to tweet about their book or whatever, and, and you just, yes, you, I read my Twitter feed and I'm like, well, sorry guys, but you know, this used to be interesting, well, but I'm just not going to read not, anything. Some but, people are good at it. And I do my own tweets about my book yeah. in that category. Some people are good at it and some people are crap at it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're good at it, like Damien, you can sell books. <laughs> Fair enough. Should we have another question? Uh, thanks, Jude Kelly. Um, Next year, uh, with Tim, we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the World Wide Web. We're doing the festival that celebrates that 25th. And uh, the concern, and I think it's a, uh, the, the appropriate one, for the discussion about that celebration is the idea of freedom. Because the World Wide Web gave people, gives people, enormous freedom. But like lots of other advances, I don't want to make this analogy, but I will, the pill, for example. Having freedom doesn't mean you have the... Uh, mental and emotional equipment to know exactly what to do with it once you've got it. And sometimes freedom comes on you very quickly, uh, way before you've worked out the moral compass that you're going to manoeuvre around. So it seems to me that we're just at the stage when this freedom to connect allows us to compose ourselves and analyse what the moral and emotional boundaries, including relaxation and time, mean for us. But I think we've only just got there. So. I, I, on an optimistic note, 
you would never want to retreat from the idea that this connectedness allows people to have conversations with people they've never had with before. It's disappointing to hear that you only want to have them with people like yourself. But actually, I'm not entirely sure that's true, because the football analogy of all standing together with people that you'd normally hate, but actually you're excited to be with them. I think you can get past the idea that you only want to be with one tribe, but you've got to practice it. But what, on this point, and I mean a couple of points that were made earlier, there's the emotional impact of connectedness, isn't there? There's the impact on your wife or your husband of the fact that you're walking around with a crowd of people all the time uh, on your smartphone. Um, I mean, what, we're only just starting to realize the impact of that, aren't we? Or... Yeah, you, you go to restaurants, you see a couple um, not connecting with each other. It's a kind of paradox of connectivity that we risk becoming disconnected with people physically closest to us. Couples in restaurants on their iPhones texting, tweeting, not speaking to each other. I think it was about a year ago. Um, and what it, it demonstrated was that roughly half the people surveyed would give up alcohol and chocolate for a week rather than give up their mobile phone. A third would give up sex for a week rather than give up their mobile phone. 20% <laughs> uh, would give up a toothbrush rather than give up their mobile phone. But, but that percentage went up to 40% if your phone was an iPhone. Um, however, iPhone users believed that other iPhone users, 80% of them believed that other iPhone users were the best romantic partners. So the connection between halitosis and connectivity, I think, is a really, really exciting one to explore. I think there are, you're absolutely right, there are a whole load of new social mores and, and this coping with freedom. I experienced this in a very real way in my former career as a diplomat when, um, when Central Europe became democratic, when the wall came down and all these former communist countries were suddenly opened up. And everyone had to learn a new role. The people who had been in government had to learn how to be in prison. The people who had been in the media had to learn how to write the truth. The people who had been in prison had to learn how to be in government. And ordinary people had to learn how to live in a society in which they could actually say what they thought. And it was incredibly difficult. And some countries did it rather well, and some did it very, very badly. And, and I think this opening up effect, the ability to express yourself, does challenge people incredibly. I think it's a hugely positive force in the world, but it's not necessarily a comfortable one. And, and we are all going to need to learn how to, how to live with it, and it's going to take time. I think we should see it as a positive force, but we shouldn't see it as a positive force with, with, with starry eyes. Um, education is a positive force, and the World Wide Web produces a wonderful opportunity for education. But educated people still kill each other. I mean, I don't think it changes some of the, some of the, some of the fundamentals. Um, we probably ought to answer the gentleman about the next five years. Honestly, we don't know as yeah. well because people's behavior changes in unpredictable ways. One thing about the next five years, which is more of a, a sort of techie thing, but we, we'll have many more p people connected to the Internet five billion, six billion, who knows exactly how many. We'll also have a huge number more things connected to the internet. One estimate I was reading recently said roughly 20 billion machines connected by 2020. Um, and they all produce data. And I think one of the things that, that's really interesting is how, as you start producing data, which is hard data out of a machine that's doing something um, and you start to be able to analyze that, you start to be able to understand better the systems which 
underpin our societies, how to make them more efficient, um, how perhaps to tackle uh, some of the challenges of global warming, that kind of thing. This, this ability to mine and use data, I think, is one of the big new things that will happen over the next four, five, six years. And the Internet of Things, the connectivity of machines, uh, will be a big driver of that. Can I just change the subject briefly to professionals? I mean, I, I'm a professional journalist, and clearly that the, the Internet and the opening up of participation and the ability for people to write and report and tweet and what have you has presented uh, a fundamental challenge to my profession. It also struck me the other day when I went to see the doctor about something. You know, I was saying, here are my symptoms, and she looked at her screen and sort of said, OK, I'm going to prescribe you this. And it suddenly struck me that she was following the NICE guidelines on her computer, and I can follow the NICE guidelines on my computer as well. And I can go home and look up all the side effects of these things and look at the protocol that she's following. And it just struck me that but that was not a process that she resented particularly. She said, you know, what about this or what about that? Um, that's changed enormously in 10 years. 10 years ago, if you went to see a doctor and you said, I've been looking on the Internet and I think, you know, I might have this or that, they'd look at you as if you were... They've had to adjust to, to everybody's, those professions have had to adjust to the fact that people are connected, they are informed, they want to take part in the process. And I assume that that happens to, that is happening to all the professions represented in this room. Does anybody have a thought about that? Uh, in a sort of way house here, and I'm just saying what if being connected virtually is in fact more intimate than face to face? because the suggestion is that there's a moral superiority about face-to-face. -face. Um, and in Ed's presentation, there's something better about long-form. I've never heard that word long-form before. I just call it non-fiction. Um, but it, what if we are more intimate when we're not face-to-face? -face? What happens then? Because I think in many situations, actually, um, more and more of us, I mean, I am a journalist, but I have much more intimate connections with far more of my readers now than I ever ha have had, and intimate in the terms of, of, of good and also what Peter called, you know, the slime coming out of people's heads. I get it all. I mean, comment is free on The Guardian is a, an experiment in um, the relationship between readers and um, commentators. So... I sometimes ask myself, and I'm t I tell my own children, get off your phone, talk to me, look, look, look me in the face. We all do that, don't we? Because we all think, somehow, that this is better, that this talking now is better than what we'd be doing online. But what if it isn't? Right, and what if it's not better to read a book, it's better to do something else? Julia, I think, that gentleman there. Julie was selflessly pointing to somebody. She wasn't actually going to say anything. I know she's going to say something. Um, <laughs> it's a comment about scale and connectedness, and it's not, un, uh, it's not unrelated to um, Suzanne's point about the intimacy, the curious new intimacy you get online. I'm just interested in the fact that we do all want face-to-face -face and increasingly small, personalised connections, the bigger and the more infinite the possibilities for connecting become. And I think that's why fiction and other forms of long form are, are not dying because there is this intensity and intimacy and closeness that is going to survive um, 
being in an ocean of information. So what I'm interested by is the fact that we're now operating simultaneously, always, in two dimensions. The very, very large, very, very fast, very, very big data, perma-connected dimension, and the normal human, I feel, you feel, one-to-one -one scale. I don't know whether anyone disagrees with that. I think fiction is the deepest form of connectivity, and that's, you know, that is, that is about using the imagination. It's about discovering the world in a way you can't possibly do, I think, actually reading any nonfiction, reading any journalism, and it's about understanding ourselves and understanding the world we're in and our history. And I don't think anything beats that, and occasionally cinema at its very finest does. Um, and people will always want that. That, that will never, ever go away. And it, we just have lots. Why can't we have it all? I mean, the point is, we can tweet and we can read a 500-page novel. It's fine. I don't see the problem. You know? oh, well, let's stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, on this point that Suzanne was making, it just strikes me as a journalist, you have this weird duality where when I started, you know, you, there weren't mobile phones. So, you know, the only way you could find information was picking up the phone and occasionally somebody would fax something to you or put it through the post. You know, these days, if I, if I want to write, I, I've got a subject I want to write about and I can find out, I can read the papers, I can find out that the world's expert is somewhere in Georgia, some, some oncologist in Georgia, I can ring her up and she'll call me back within about 10 minutes. And I, that, that process would have taken me months if it had ever happened before so simultaneously there's a sort of enormous greater efficiency in what the, what you can access and what you can get hold of but the competition is also simultaneously much greater uh, to come back to the the question that you asked the audience about uh, three questions ago and related to matthew talking about data um uh unfortunately there isn't uh good data out there in medicine i'm a surgeon um, and when you think about it, and the public don't really think about this because they, they say, well, surely the government are collecting the data, aren't they? Um, but then you have to have experts, the rubbish in, rubbish out, you have to have the experts entering the data, and the experts are the people who are delivering the treatment, and they don't have the time to enter it, and to employ armies of data managers causes a problem. We're trying to solve it in my particular territory by setting up the National Facial and Oral Research Centre, which is now set up, and which is aiming to collect data. But to do that, sometimes it takes 10 years to find out the results of treatment, or even 20 years. Um, so you have to have the consent from the patients to long-term follow-up, and you have to have people accurately entering data. So when you are sitting in your doctor's surgery looking at the NICE guidelines or at home looking at the NICE guidelines, you should be cynical about that because that is not based always on sound data. We've right. got to get good data first, and right. it needs human beings right. to enter that data. Okay. I, I've been handed a note saying five-minute warning. I don't know if that's a warning to me or to everybody, but I shall pass it on. Um, anybody else? Hi, my name is Hussein Shafi, and uh, I'm from a company called Lobby. My question is to... I see that you're filming at the same time. I am, yeah, bizarrely. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to go up on YouTube. Basically, my question is this. Um, the impact of social media in Italy and the politics of Italy is now going to be changed. Do you think there's a time for the same kind of thing to happen in the UK? And do you think it's going to be the normal channels that social media that are in place at the moment? 
I think that any country can have, um, if you've got sufficient um, anger with the kind of political establishment, um, that um, particularly in, uh, enhanced by technology, it's really the internet as much as social media, um, uh, you can get this sudden um, rise of a new movement which become, proves irresistible. Now, you, systems do make a difference, you know, whether or not you have proportional representation or not. You know, the, the National Front in France is at sort of close to 20% of the vote, um, but they don't have any seats because you don't, you don't have a system which gives them that representation. So you can block things, but, but I think nowadays, yes, it's, it's increasingly possible to organize quickly if, you've, if you're, rather to use your point about selling books, if you're good at it. <laughs> um, um, and it's not quite clear what good at it is. And I think also in countries where you can't trust government. This is where we're seeing really interesting uses of social media. So you have you know, a website in India now, um, ipaidabribe.com. And, you know, and people will share their testimonies of, I paid this local policeman a bribe. I paid this person a bribe. And so you can gather a truth that um, contests the official narrative. And I think that's very interesting for politics in places where you know, we can't trust political lines. I mean, what's going to be interesting, I just to pursue the Italian thing for a moment, I mean, the, what Grillo is also is a kind of charismatic individual, almost of a throwback type to the sort of two um, messiah figures from the past. And he, what, has, what has gathered people together is a mixture of participation in social media and a charismatic individual. What would be interesting as it, as it goes forward is whether or not that the, the power of the charismatic individual is itself then destroyed by, by the technology because people get wise quickly and move, move on. Is it a sort of an amoeba that keeps on you know, splitting and changing and, and, and so forth and becomes... So we, 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 we don't know is the answer. Okay, and on that uh, cheery note, <laughs> uh, an optimistic note, uh, we don't know. I'm going to wind it up. Uh, we don't know, but we have learned things, so uh, thanks to the panel. That was the Names Not Numbers podcast. There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening.